Amen. Thank you to the, all the musicians, but to the Bloom family in particular. As I mentioned last week, that is my personal favorite Christmas hymn. Uh, I don't know what yours may be, but that is my, my personal favorite. So I appreciate that, that song. Speaking of Christmas songs, uh, one of the most popular Christmas songs that has ever been written of all time would be the song White Christmas, written in 1942 probably know by the man by the name of Bing Crosby. This classic song sets this picturesque scene, and it's proven to be, again, one of the most popular songs ever written. Personally love the song. I think it's a great song. But when you think about the imagery of that song, at some level it sets us up with an expectation that is so often disappointed. In fact, I mean, when you're a kid, you don't think about this, but I remember the first time that I realized that in places like South Africa for Christmas, they have what we would, would look much more like our Fourth of July celebration because it's summer. And so we have this imagery in our mind of what Christmas should look like, blankets of snow, for us, puddles of rain, okay, whatever it may be. And so often, that imagery sets up an expectation that so often is disappointed. But is that really what the celebration of Christmas is all about? In fact, the celebration of Christmas has become a a very essential piece of our American culture, hasn't it? Not just ours, but certainly the celebration of of Christmas is celebrated all over the world, and many of our cultural practices actually come from based on practices from Germany that have evolved here in America and made its way to our country. You think about what Christmas means to businesses. They depend on it for their financial survival. That's why the Friday after Thanksgiving is called Black Friday, the hope that businesses can recover financially and have a successful year that keeps them in the black. Families use this time of year to to gather. Normally, for the Knowles family, we take some time and travel to see our family. We've never lived near family. We don't know what that looks like or feels like. Ever since we've been married, we've lived hours and hours away from family. But that won't happen this year. Does that make Christmas any less Christmas? Commercialism is certainly a big part of this time of year. Some of us have the blessing of having someone who goes to stores for us, talking about me. I don't step foot in them as rarely as humanly possible ever, particularly at Christmas time. My wife braves those things for me, but I hear stories of how lovely that experience is. And the vast majority of Christians, or American families rather, not Christians necessarily, get together, they celebrate the season, they hustle through the stores. And how often do we stop, even as believers, and remember what is the purpose of this winter festival? What is the reason that we celebrate this? It's a yearly reminder, isn't it? It's an Ebenezer, a marker for us to remember that the most important person in the history of mankind, was born at Christmas. 
In a very special sense, as believers, we know there's two significant festivals that we celebrate each year, Easter in the spring and Christmas here in the winter. Now, we have to understand, it's very unlikely that Jesus was born in December. We know historically that is pretty clear that that was not the time of year that He was born. But knowing the exact date is not the reason that December 25th is important to us. What is important to us is that we get to celebrate the birth of the King of Kings. In fact, this birth was so important that our entire calendar system is built on this birth. B.C., before Christ. A.D., from the Latin phrase, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. So why was this child so significant, so significant that our entire calendar would be based on it? Well, I want to take you to a very familiar Christmas text in the first kind of movement of today's challenge. I want to take you to a Christmas text you probably have been reading and thinking about. I want to take you to Genesis chapter 3. Because in fact, the Christmas story does not begin in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or even John. The Christmas story doesn't actually begin in a manger. The Christmas story actually began in a garden. In Genesis chapter 3, I won't go through all the background of the first three chapters of Genesis, but we know that in the book of Genesis we have the recording historical data that talks about God's creation, talks about God creating mankind. And that mankind had this opportunity to live in a place called Eden. And yet, even in living in a perfect situation, a perfect world at that time, newly created world, Satan himself enters into the picture and he tempts Adam and Eve to partake, to violate, by the way, the one commandment God gave to them. Only one. As you know the story, they chose to disobey God. They chose to violate this one commandment that God had given to to them. And now the Christmas story begins to develop in Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15, when the Lord speaks, and He speaks to the serpent, the form that Satan himself used to tempt Adam and Eve. "'Because you have done this,' God said, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. Now, there's all kinds of debate. Did the serpent have legs before this and all of that? I don't personally believe so. I think the picture is that this imagery of of the serpent crawling through the dirt would be this consistent reminder in our minds of this moment in history, the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, here comes the good news. Verse 15, I put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Say, where's Christmas in that? Christmas is there at the very first prediction of the coming Messiah. He will bruise your head, Satan. 
There is coming one, this is called, by the way, if you want a fancy word to use today at lunch, the Proto-Evangelium. This is the first gospel, the first mention of the good news that Satan would be defeated by one of Adam and Eve's descendants. Oh, he would cause damage. There would be this enmity between humanity and between the work of darkness. And we see this picture that you will, in a sense, bruise his heel. There will be suffering. But there's coming a Messiah who will crush your head, Satan. In fact, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this imagery in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children shall share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The Proto-Evangelium the gospel, the Messiah would come. This wasn't an afterthought, by the way. The coming of his son being born to a virgin, this wasn't something that God developed in response to Adam and Eve's sin. He, this was always the plan. They had their free choice. We won't get into all that this morning. They chose to violate God's word. But God always had a plan of redemption. Now, this plan of redemption, as it plays out, we have the fall all the way back in the garden, and now we, trans, we go forward a little bit. We transfer our, our minds to the time of the prophets, still hundreds of years before Jesus would come. The gospel begins in the garden, but now as the gospel takes root and Christmas begins to become more and more developed in the minds of people, we have the prediction and there's many of them. I'll just read one for you this morning. This is Isaiah 53. When Isaiah the prophet says this, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had, no, listen to this, he had no form or majesty, but we should look at him and no beauty that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one, every one, all of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He has oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now notice a couple of observations about this Isaiah text. Hundreds of years before Christ came, the coming Messiah 
was seemingly insignificant. Not only that, he was despised and rejected by those he came to save. We know, as we fast forward all the way to the Gospels, that the Jews were looking for this king that was going to come and throw off their oppressors. They didn't expect this lowly man born to Joseph and Mary in a pitiful place. Grew up in Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. But this prediction says that he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. The imagery here, by the way, maybe you've seen this happen. There's a tree maybe in your yard where you see this, that out of one of the roots that is exposed on the top of the ground, you get this one little weird-looking growth coming off the root. That's the picture, insignificant. You just generally trim them away. He did not meet the expectations of the people that he was coming to save. There was no majesty in him. There was no beauty in him. In verses 4 and 5, Isaiah says that the coming Messiah would bear the sins and transgressions of mankind, and he would heal us from our sins. Not only is Isaiah looking at the manger and looking at the birth of Christ, he's also seeing the death of Christ. He's seeing the death, burial, and resurrection, this substitutionary suffering and the death of this servant foretells of the coming Messiah and what he would do for mankind. Now, the irony in this is that the Messiah took punishment that we deserved, not him. In fact, in verses 6 and 7, Isaiah makes it plain to us that we have all turned astray. We have all turned away. We have all gone the way of rebellion against God, much like Adam and Eve. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, Peter says this, He himself bore our sins in the body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Isn't that a beautiful picture? We could die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Sounds familiar. That's what Isaiah was talking about. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned, returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, the Messiah was always God's plan. The plan in the garden, the plan that was demonstrated through the prophets, and now we come to the gospels and we find the fulfillment in fact, in a more familiar Christmas text, Luke chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby sitting on a throne. Is that what it says? You will find him with a crown on his head and diadems. And wondrous things of gold and all of these wonderful, majestic things that you would expect to find at the birth of a king. It's not what it says. It says you're going to find an insignificant child, seemingly insignificant child, lying wrapped in swaddling clothes, just like every other baby. Not in a throne room but in a manger. This place of humility, 
Jesus wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born to a carefully crafted nursery. Do you remember the birth of your first child and the amount of time and energy that went into putting together your first nursery? There was none of that for Jesus. Most parents would be in a state of panic if they were told that they were going to give birth in a place where animals live. Sounds pretty dirty. Sounds pretty nasty in our world of making sure everything is clean and sterile. This wasn't a sterile environment. Jesus didn't enter the world, by the way, to the wonderful smelling aromas of a holiday meal or Christmas cookies cooking in the oven. He didn't even get to experience the wonderful smells of the peppermint candles and cinnamon candles or gingerbread candle or candles or cedar-smelling candles. Instead, he entered into the world under the stench that comes with a barn. I contacted Yankee Candle, by the way, and I recommended to them a new line of flavors that I have called Smells from the Stall. I thought it would be a little more Christmassy, a little more accurate. When you read through the Gospels, try to engage your senses. What did it look like? What did it feel like? But as I read through this, lying in a manger, I ask myself, what did that smell like? Not very good. Dirty, nasty, not a place you would want to lay your baby. But here's the king of kings the Son of God, the Messiah, predicted in the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis chapter 3, predicted by Isaiah and others, prophets writing hundreds of years before. Here he is lying in a manger, not in the lap of luxury. And not only that, if we think about the fact that he was born to suffer, He didn't enter this world as a popular man, as an attractive man like we might see in movie stars today or in royalty today. Jesus was born to Mary and to Joseph through very unusual circumstances, which we've already heard about. And Jesus' ministry, his mission, his calling was to be despised, rejected, mocked, and killed so that he could rescue you from your sin. That was the purpose. Let me talk to you briefly in closing about the response. What do we do with that? Well, in Matthew chapter 2, we are introduced to some men that give us a picture of what the proper response to Christmas is, to the coming Messiah is. We find these words, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king... Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. This is some time after the birth of Christ. Saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star and it rose and have come, listen to this, to worship him. It's interesting that these wise men, as we call them, that they understood the significance of this child. 
This wasn't just another baby. This was a unique child. This was a child that was deserving of worship. Why? Because he was God in the flesh. In fact, as you fast forward and you think through the life and ministry of Christ, throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus willingly received worship. And he claimed to be the one and only Son of God. In fact, this was what ultimately got him crucified. Is that claims like, my father and I are one. Claims like, before Abraham was, I am. Clear declaration of deity. Not only that, Jesus not only made these claims to be one with the Father, of the same essence of Father, of the Father, not only claiming to be the I am from Exodus, he also had the audacity to say, I could even forgive sins. Oh, the religious people wanted no part of that. And yet, time and time again, Jesus, through his miracles, through his words, through his preaching, demonstrated he was the Messiah. And the Jewish people that grew up quoting Isaiah, grew up understanding the prophecies about this coming king, rejected him, hung him on a cross, put him to death, In his ultimate demonstration of his deity came when he rose from the dead on what we call Easter Sunday. And by the way, we celebrated each and every Sunday the resurrection of our Lord. I was listening this morning as I was finishing my thoughts for today. Oh, Come, all ye faithful. We sang it this morning. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. You have two choices this Christmas. One, I guess three, actually. One, you could ignore Jesus. Just ignore this whole idea and do your thing eat your food visit family do whatever you do and ignore christ or you could outright reject him ignoring is kind of an indifference i suppose rejection could be knowing who christ is recognizing who christ is and being much like the people who jesus came to save and the jewish people who were expecting this messiah who outright rejected him and crucified him you could do that too Or you could do what God is calling us to do. Do exactly what these wise men did. Worship him. Oh, come let us, as the believers in Christ, adore him. Oh, holy night, that song says, fall on your knees. The night that Christ was born, it changed the world forever. And it gave us hope that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. The Christmas story began in a garden 
The Christmas story takes us through the prophets. It takes us through the manger. It takes us through 33-plus years of Christ's life. It takes us to a cross of Calvary, and then it leads us on to a new creation and an eternity with this Messiah, with this Savior. My question for you as we end today is will you experience the hope that is found in Christ? If you know him, adore him, worship him, keep him as the centerpiece of your Christmas. If you don't know him as your Savior, there's no better time than now. This could be the first Christmas in your life that you could truly understand the Messiah. By believing in him by faith, he will deliver you from your unrighteousness and make you new and redeem you from your sin. That is the greatest gift ever given, and it's available to you today. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for these simple ideas and ideas that are, that are not new to most of us. But Lord, it is so tempting, easy to, to fall prey to the fact that this time of year gets so busy that we can, if we're not careful, forget to keep Christ at the center of this season. It is a time to celebrate. It is a time to enjoy family and food and all those things. That's great. But may we do it as we remember the Messiah. Lord, I pray that as we end this morning that if there is one here today that is not sure about their redemption, about their relationship with Christ, that they would settle that before they leave today. We thank you for the music and for the many, many people that use their gifts and abilities this morning to lead us in worship, and we thank you for it. Pray for everyone's safety as they drive home in the weather today, that you keep them safe as we go home, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. God bless you. Have a very Merry Christmas.